the human brain, there are, are about 100 billion neurons. And each of those neurons, on average, has about 10,000 microscopic connections to other neurons, called those synapses. So 10,000 synapses for each of 100 billion neurons gives us a total of 10,000 trillion connections. This PLUS podcast is all about complexity. I'm Marianne Freiberger and I'll be discussing complexity with a neuroscientist who you've just heard of, a climate scientist and a mathematician who specializes on information networks including the internet. I met these three at the first meeting of the Cambridge Complex Systems Consortium, which was set up by Clare Hall College Cambridge with support of Lockheed Martin UK. The meeting brought together people from areas as diverse as business, anti-terrorism and sociology and the three I've just mentioned. What all these areas have in common is that they are vastly complex, and while they are very different, the mathematical tools developed to cope with this complexity are likely to be similar, so it's worth comparing notes. The consortium has the ambitious aim of establishing an overarching science of complexity, a sort of toolbox serving everyone who deals with it in whatever shape or form, irrespective of their particular area. We've already heard from Ed Bullmore, professor of psychiatry at the University of Cambridge, talking about the vast number of connections between neurons in the brain. So let's hear a little more about his take on complexity. Most of the functions of the brain emerge from the coordinated activity of more than one neuron. So to understand how the brain works, you have to understand the simultaneous activity of ensembles of neurons or networks of neurons, and it's that very large number of synaptic connections that is the substrate for that um, network formation in the brain. So the connections that there are, that's, a, that's an absolutely vast number and it must be very difficult to look at. So what you do is you look at different areas of the brain and see how they are interconnected, is that right? Yeah, I mean, we, what I've just described is what exists at a cellular level, at a microscopic level in the brain. And in the human, we can't see that level of organization Certainly we can't see it in uh, living patients or participants. Uh, so for most of our work, we use brain scanning techniques, neuroimaging techniques, which allow us to measure aspects of brain structure and function very safely and conveniently uh, in uh, living volunteers and patients. The downside, if you like, is that we can only see the brain at a much coarser scale in terms of spatial resolution. It's in the order of millimeters or centimeters, um, uh, but relatively good temporal resolution. So with some techniques, you can see electrical activity changes in the brain in the order of uh, you know, milliseconds or, 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 in fact, shorter intervals than that. And give us an example of the kind of thing you'd be looking for if you do a test with some volunteers. The simplest sort of experiment you can do is just to ask uh, volunteers to lie quietly in a scanner um, doing nothing in particular and make recordings of the brain's um, activity at rest or its endogenous activity because the brain, even when we're not asking it to do anything experimentally, the brain is, is active uh, in, a, in a complex, coordinated way and it's revealing just to make measurements of that resting state activity and typically what you'll see is that there are patterns of correlation between multiple different regions uh, in various different frequency intervals coming and going over the course of time. And that's one thing that you can do. The other thing, to take it a little bit m more complex, 
experimentally would be to have participants uh, doing some kind of cognitive task while uh, measurements are being made. Um, so, for example, you could ask people to do a, a working memory task which taxed the uh, executive functions of the brain and, and got certain circuits working particularly hard. And, of course, you can look at patients with various different kinds of disorder compared to normal volunteers under resting conditions or cognitively challenging conditions. Uh, you can look at the effects of uh, drug treatment on the brain functional networks under um, any condition and so on. So there are plenty of experimental opportunities. Now you say that you, um, in, in your test you find those transient networks and you said that they have a particular feature which is that they tend to be small world networks. Mm. Yeah, small world networks burst onto the scene, I guess, about 10 years ago when some scientists called Watts and Strogatz published a famous paper in Nature which showed that quite a lot of uh, real-life networks had this topological organization that was somewhere between a random network and a regular network. You know, like a, a regular network, a small world system has high clustering, high connectivity uh, amongst nearest neighbors of any particular node in the network. But uh, unlike a regular lattice and like a random network, a small a small world network also has short path length between any pair of nodes. So if you take any pair of nodes at all within the network and look at, look at how many steps lie between them, then this tends to be a small number. It will tend to be a small number for both a random network and a small world network. But the small world network also has this property of local clustering. And that's That's attractive to neuroscientists because uh, before that observation had been made, uh, there was already a, a sort of historical tension in neuroscience um, about how to explain the way the brain worked in the sense that you know, we know that some brain functions are highly specialized and highly localized. So, for example, uh, various aspects of visual perception are localized in one particular area of the brain. But other functions, like working memory or attention, don't have a, you know, a localized location in the brain. They appear to be more distributed. So for a long time there's been a tension in neuroscience. How can we find a model for brain architecture which will give us both? And the attractive thing about small world uh, topology in that context is it kind of solves the tension. You know, it says here's an architecture which can give you both the capacity for segregated or localized processing and uh, also the capacity for highly efficient distributed processing. So that was immediately attractive to neuroscientists. And of course it's worth bearing in mind that small world organization is, is a characteristic of a lot of other information processing systems. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be a brain. You know, uh, economic systems, infrastructural systems, mm -hmm. you know, a whole bunch of substantively very different information processing systems or information transmitting systems Uh, tend to have this property in common. And if the small world idea seems familiar to you, then that's probably because of Hollywood actor Kevin Bacon. Allegedly, if you make a network of actors connecting any two if they have appeared in the same movie, you'll find that all actors are connected to Kevin Bacon in no more than six steps. He's the center of the Hollywood universe. Back to neuroscience, there is evidence that brain connectivity is indeed hugely important for brain function. Research with schizophrenic patients that's been done over the last 10 years has shown that the root of their problem may well be an inefficiently, possibly overconnected brain. The human brain is of course a product of evolution. 
and the small world feature crops up in many networks that have evolved naturally. The internet is one of them. Despite being a product of the human brain, it resembles a living, changing and evolving organism. In sheer size and complexity, it will soon rival the brain. Unfortunately though, it may soon be in need of an overhaul, it's getting too slow. This is a difficult task given that no one knows what the internet looks like in its entirety. Here's Frank Kelly, Professor of the Mathematics of Systems at the University of Cambridge. The internet's very big. It's hard to know exactly how big it is because parts of it are hidden. But if one uh, looks at the observable internet, one sees um, hundreds of millions of endpoints. And if one counts uh, what's the mobile phones and the uh, various devices that will be connected to the internet in the next few years, uh, it's reasonable to expect it to grow to many billions of endpoints. And is it a small world network? Um, ah, a good question. Uh, there are certainly um, very particular characteristics of the graph, uh, and it's generated uh, some controversy about just whether it's this or that. It, it, it is the case that between any two points, there's typically about, I think it's 15 to 20 hops. Yeah, there might be points on it that are quite a long way apart, but most uh, pairs of things that communicate are only about 15 or so hops from each other. And what kind of challenges um, are we facing now concerning the internet, or what kind of questions are there that need to be solved? Well, it's it's grown um, remarkably, and that is really a remarkable tribute to the uh, design of those initial algorithms uh, and the initial protocols. But they are beginning to show some signs of age. Um, Transmission control protocol controls the rate at which data is transferred uh, when you click on a web page, the rate at which the page is downloaded to you, the, um, the little bar you see at the bottom of a browser window telling you that you're getting a certain number of uh, bits per second. Um, and one of the difficulties is that um, the algorithm has to scale to the remarkable um, changes, remarkable heterogeneity of transition rates of sizes of documents, um, and it's beginning to show signs of strain now. Of course, there are other challenges. One of the big challenges um, of the last decade, and, and I think of the next decade, will be the, the wireless links that are often at the end. As we um, move to use the internet in, in mobile circumstances more and more, then the particular characteristics of wireless um, connections become important. Um, you know, it's, it, it's, there's interference as well as um, congestion, um, noise that might be caused by, by you know, machinery or just background um, uh, uh, radio noise. The, the algorithm confuses that with congestion. And so that's another challenge to try to, uh, to, to, to have the algorithms work better when there are different types of link technology and link technologies, um, including wireless. Um, so um, how do you deal with that? Because you can't, the internet is so big that you can't map it outside of itself and analyze it and optimize it and then come out with solutions. So you have to do it in a kind of more organic way. So how can well, you deal with it? It's a, it's a very natural problem for, for, for mathematicians, I think, to try to understand. It, it is very large. Um, if it were smaller, one might stand a chance of simulating it or trying to understand it uh, by, by building rather precise models of the components. But because it's so large, um, that actually helps um, techniques that are based on asymptotics of one type or another. When things are large enough, um, very often regularities emerge, statistical patterns emerge, uh, and, and, and these can be useful to understand uh, the behavior. Is there an example you could give of such an argument that isn't too hard to understand? 
Hmm, okay, so here's one. Uh, if one imagines, for example, a telephone exchange, the, the Cambridge Exchange, with people wanting to make telephone calls to London, uh, that essentially looks like a Poisson arrival process, a simple mathematical uh, description of the arrival process. Mm -hmm. The reasons for people making calls are many and varied, and the complexity of why someone would want to make a call now rather than some other time, that that is washed out. As far as the exchange is concerned, it's seen the superposition of a very large number of independent events. So even though the whole system of people making calls is incredibly complex and um, and interconnected in a way that you could never describe precisely, if you look at a very large number of calls arriving, then it looks essentially as if they arrived randomly. So mathematicians can use their understanding of randomness with um, statistics and probability theory to describe the process and to find patterns. That's right. If, if, if you superimpose a large number of things, then it's often the case that you're concerned with shorter and shorter timescales because the, the, um, the action happens on a short timescale. Uh, short timescale... The things that happen in that time scale being having many, many different independent causes, that produces simplicity, uh, a, a simpler mathematical description. Okay, so um, in terms of the, the study or the theory of complexity, are these kind of techniques, are they unique to the internet or are there other very complex systems where similar things, are, similar techniques are used or similar things occur? Yeah, there are, there are lots of analogies between different um, types of network, networks that arrive, arise in biology or in the, or in the, in the brain or in um, communication technological constructs like uh, communication networks or in things like road traffic networks. There are phenomena that are immensely provocative in, in, in some networks that then transfer to others. For example? Well, for example, if one looks at um, physical uh, networks, if one looks, for example, at uh, water molecules then um, if I'm sitting on a water molecule and looking at my adjacent water molecules, then not much changes in uh, the way I relate to those water molecules as the temperature varies. Indeed, the intermolecular forces are not very much different just below zero and just above zero or just below 100 and just above 100. However, there is a macroscopic consequence which is a, which is dramatic as the temperature rises above 100 the water boils so that uh, example in a physical system of a phase transition is immensely provocative and it is in technologically constructed systems uh, like communication networks or in road traffic networks it is possible to see things which are very similar to phase transitions dramatic uh, consequences cascading failures like the financial work. <laughs> well, yes, I don't know so much about that. Yeah. But, if, if, but if I mention, say the, say, the road traffic network, if an accident happens on a motorway, uh, quite a lot of drivers divert away from the held-up bit of road and they go on parallel alternative routes. But these routes are not such large-scale roads in general. They now have more traffic on them than they can cope with, and that often causes accidents on the, on the alternative routes, which themselves cause further rerouting of drivers and so one can sometimes see a cascading failure that propagates out from the initial accident with accidents popping up on all sorts of roads further and further away from the initial one. Um, so that at the level of an analogy um, the notion of a phase transition or a cascading failure is um, a very powerful uh, uh, analogy. I, I've no doubt that in, um, in the coming decades we'll find a core of ideas concerned with networks which is um, straightforward, simple to explain, and has many, many different applications. 
But large networks are by no means the only source of complexity. There are physical systems that are governed by a small number of well-understood factors that are nevertheless completely unpredictable. The Earth's climate is an example. In simple terms, it is determined by three factors. The energy from the Sun, the way the Earth absorbs and reflects this energy, and the transitions between the different forms that this energy can take. All of these are well understood. They are governed by the classical laws of radiation, thermodynamics and hydrodynamics, and they can be modelled by differential equations. But it's the interaction between these factors that causes problems. Here is Hans Graf, Cambridge Professor for Environmental Systems Analysis, describing the problems with weather forecasts. Well, there's a, there's a natural limit for weather forecasting. And there's a, because of the climate system, or our Earth system is a chaotic system, there's a limit uh, over which time you can really make such a deterministic forecast in time and space. And uh, this is theoretically at about two weeks. So you, anybody who says he knew something about the weather a month from now is a charlatan. So this is just impossible for theoretical reasons. In fact, it was in meteorology that the phenomenon of chaos was first observed. In the early 1960s, the mathematician and meteorologist Edward Lawrence built a simple computer model for the weather. He found out one day by accident that a tiny discrepancy in the initial values that he fed into his model led to wildly different weather forecasts. He thought at first that this was a bug in his model, but it wasn't. It's a direct consequence of the sensitivity of the system. It's become known as the butterfly effect. The tiny disturbance caused by the flap of a butterfly's wing can build up to cause a hurricane halfway around the world. This sensitivity to initial conditions is one of the hallmarks of chaos and it's been observed in many, many real-life systems. So what hope do we have then to make any sort of a long-term forecast, for example about climate change? Well, we are not saying, about, uh, not saying anything about uh, how temperature is changing at a certain place at a certain time. Although in the public discussion this is always taken, so there will be an increase of three and a half centigrade in the next 50 years. But this is a global mean. So for the global mean it's relatively easy because the global mean is determined by only a small number of, uh, of independent parameters. So we know about these processes. This is, these are basic processes. We don't have all the parameters right. This gives some uncertainties, but in principle we can do that. So that means the mean state of the planet we can nicely forecast. Still, we have big differences between different models, which have different sets of parameters. And this is just the spread of solutions that are possible. Mm -hmm. so and how, how big is this spread? How do these predictions vary? How different are they from well, each other? For, the, for a two-time CO2 scenario, when we have twice as many greenhouse gases uh, in the atmosphere, uh, the spread is between two and a half and six centigrades. But anyway, we can say something about the global mean and we can say something about the probability distribution of anomalies uh, at certain places. What we, what we actually have is a global map for, say, temperature, precipitation, evaporation and stuff, uh, which gives for every point in the world a mean value and a distribution of these of anomalies ar around the mean. So that's what we have from the models. 
And these statistics are correct. They are not a forecast in the classical sin sense, but they are a forecast of the second kind, so that's a forecast of changes in the probability di di distribution of these anomalies. Which begs the question whether public discussion of climate change shouldn't come with a little more statistical detail. But this is all we have time for in this PLUS podcast. There's an article accompanying this podcast with a little more information on the PLUS website. It's called Catching Terrorists with Maths and you can find it using the search facility at plus.maths.org. Thanks for listening and bye bye.